Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney. I am here as usual with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and today we're wrapping up a five-week series on faculty members who've recently published a book and are doing so with a faculty member who happens to have a very special relationship with my co-host. Before she tells you all about him, allow me to share a couple of announcements. First, our final preview day of the fall semester will take place on Friday, October 21st. For the first time ever, we're offering a preview weekend. We're still calling it preview day, but it's a preview weekend for those prospective students who want to stay through the weekend and get to know our city, our churches, and the people of Beeson a little bit better. We have a fun schedule planned for our first preview weekend. Learn more and register at beesondivinity.com slash preview day. Second, our conference on the beauty of God for pastors, worship leaders, artists, and interested laity is just around the corner, October 24 and 25. There is still time to buy tickets. Don't miss out on this unique opportunity. Again, learn more at beesondivinity.com slash events. All right, Kristen, who's this mystery man sitting next to you today? Thanks, Doug. Uh, this mystery man happens to be my husband. Um, we have Dr. Osvaldo Padilla on the show today. He is professor of divinity here at Beeson Divinity School, where he teaches courses on the New Testament and Greek and theology. And um, we have a son, Philip, together. So it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Well, I wonder if you can tell our listeners what you've been up to recently. You've been on the podcast before, been able to share a bit of your story. So I wonder if you can tell our listeners what you've been up to for the last couple of years and anything that you want to share with them as we get started today. Yes. for, so the, the main thing that, we, that I've been working on for the last two years is a commentary on the pastoral epistles. Nowadays, uh, being October in the life of a divinity school, it's a very busy time. Hmm. I think everyone is teaching, grading, taking papers, uh, and so on. And one of the things that I'm doing uh, just now, which is very excited, is teaching a class in our um, event or a series of events that we call Lay Academy at Peace and Divinity School. We offer it every year and it's open to the public. Um, no credits are, are given, but uh, anybody who's a friend of Beeson or who doesn't know Beeson can come and take a course with experts uh, on the Old Testament, on church history, on the New Testament, and I happen to be uh, teaching a class on the Gospel of John. So right now, I'm very busy mm-hmm. studying uh, John chapter 1 and getting prepared for that uh, lay academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the last couple of years, uh, or more than that, have been uh, focused on a commentary on the pastoral epistles. Uh, I was invited by a former colleague, uh, Dr. Ecker Schnabel, who is a professor now at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, 
uh, out of the blue one day to write on the pastoral epistles. I don't know why he asked me to do that, because I had no experience on the pastoral epistles, but he did, and I had been praying for the last three months prior to that, uh, asking the Lord to give me a chance to write a commentary. And then I received that email from Eckhart, uh, and I took that as an answer uh, to that prayer. And so for the last three, four, five years, we've been uh, working away uh, in the, on the pastoral epistles. Um, just returned from a sabbatical uh, that is spent at uh, Emory University in, the, in their Candler School of Theology, an excellent theological library. And actually about two to three months ago, I was able to complete the commentary. So right now it is with the publisher, with InterVarsity Press. Uh, the commentary is part of their uh, Tyndale New Testament commentary series. Uh, it's a series that is written for uh, pastors and students, uh, folks who want to get serious into the biblical texts, but uh, who are not necessarily uh, professors or experts in the field, but they want to learn the Word of God well, and they want to teach it, and they want to preach it. So that is the main thing I've been doing for the last uh, for the last few years. Well, that sounds like plenty, Dr. Padilla. Thank you for all your hard work. And let's help our listeners out just a little bit. Some of them are pastors. Some of them are people who know all this already. But a lot of them uh, need to know from Dr. Padilla more about the pastoral epistles themselves. Can you give us just a brief little primer on the pastoral epistles? What are they? Which books in the New Testament are they? Who wrote them? What's in them? That kind of thing. Yes, I'm glad to, to help with that. So the pastoral epistles are named like that, not because some archaeologists in the 5th or 6th century AD found a manuscript that said the pastoral epistles. Rather, the pastoral epistles are three separate letters of our canonical New Testament, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And somewhere around the 18th century, scholars of these letters realized that they were written to individuals who were uh, invested on behalf of Paul in pastoral ministry. And so they viewed as a unifying theme for this letter's pastoral work. And therefore, they call them the pastoral epistles. And again, they include uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, who wrote the pastoral epistles? There is debate today on who wrote these letters. But the text of Scripture, which uh, we take as the Word of God, uh, clearly says that Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, to Timothy. Or Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, to Titus. And so we believe that these letters have been written by the Apostle Paul's uh, to his co-workers, one of his many co-workers. And once again, they are grouped together as three letters because their raison d'etre, their reason for existence, let's, let's call it that, is to teach this man, uh, Timothy and Titus, how to shepherd churches. There's a lot more, a more, a lot more to that, but uh, those are maybe the, the main reasons to how to shepherd churches. The pastoral epistles, as you have commented uh, to me a few times over the last several years, is mm -hmm. a combined 13 chapters, which is the same length as 2 Corinthians and almost as long as 1 Corinthians. 
for our listeners to have some context. Uh, what things have you learned about the pastoral epistles after having written a commentary that you didn't know before? Yeah, a whole lot. So one of the things I learned or remembered would be the better word, is something that the famous uh, Scottish New Testament scholar from the uh, 20th century said, F.F. F. Bruce, who wrote so many commentaries. And he said that the difficult thing about writing a commentary is that you have to comment on every word. And so uh, just when you think you're done, you find that there is no, another word and yet another word. So mm. it's, uh, it's, it's hard work, but it's joyful work because you're, you're studying the Word of God. Among many things that I learned from the pastoral epistles, I, I think that something that stuck with me was Paul's conception, as far as this letter is con these letters are concerned, Paul's conception of how you shepherd, how you're a pastor. What does it mean to be a pastor? Mm. So, so there's a lot on the pastoral epistles on salvation, eschatology, the nature of Scripture, but uh, the thing that I came away with was this concept of what does it mean to be a shepherd? What does it mean to be a pastor? A lot of our listeners probably think of the terms pastor and preacher as synonyms. And of course, there's nothing that's more important that pastors do than, than preach, but it's not the only thing pastors do. Yes. So Dr. Padilla, as you've worked on this commentary on the pastorals, have you learned anything about what the Apostle Paul thought of the relationship between preaching itself and the, and the rest of pastoral ministry, maybe particularly the shepherding parts of pastoral ministry? Yes, you read my mind, uh, <laughs> because that is actually one of the things that has struck me the most, and that is that while we would agree that Preaching the Word of God is one of the main ways that we uh, shepherd the people of God. I've come to, I've come to appreciate that pastoring uh, goes beyond simply preaching. So as a preacher, we, we minister to our people uh, the sacraments, the sacraments uh, of the table, the bread and the wine, and the sacrament of the written Word of God. And so... Those things are very important for us. But preaching usually in many churches uh, comes at the end of the service. And many times, uh, for those of you who, who have looked uh, carefully at the way that churches are built, many churches have the pulpit at the center. And that's because for them, uh, the preaching of the Word of God is central. So whatever uh, tradition you come from, we would agree that preaching the Bible is central to shepherding. But one of the things that struck me as I study these letters is that when Paul speaks of the offices of the church, and there are two offices, as I understand them, that are mentioned in the pastoral epistles, and those are the offices of overseer or bishop. Bishop is an uh, older word, so I'm going to use the word overseer and deacons, or as I also believe, uh, female deacons. Um, and we tend in the present, especially with the office of overseer, to translate that uh, to the pastor today. So what the overseer did in the pastoral epistles is in many ways what the 
quote unquote pastor does in church in many churches today. And one of the things that struck me there was that while the pastor, while the overseer is to be an apt teacher, to quote First uh, Timothy, he has to be a, a good speaker and be able to defend sound doctrine and preach the word. Um, actually, there are many other virtues that are highlighted uh, for him as an overseer. So, yes, preaching is central to be a pastor, but uh, I do not believe that you have to be an extremely gifted orator in order to be a pastor in the church. And this is something that is dear to my heart because we are training pastors here at Beeson. And in, in social media and on television and so on, uh, we tend to put on a pedestal those uh, few pastors, because there are not many, but few pastors who have that capacity uh, to preach uh, in very powerful, uh, very powerful ways. Uh, and so these pastors that we're training at Beeson tend to think, or may get the impression at times, that if they're going to be effective pastors, they also have to preach the Bible like that. And one of the things that I'm trying to encourage them as we talk about the pastorals is that, uh, yes, be faithful to scriptures, uh, to the scriptures, do uh, hard work as you study it, uh, teach it in the most elegant and best way possible. Uh, but remember that that is not what makes a pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. In fact, the word pastor is comes from the Latin, which means a, she a shepherd. And so... Uh, when I read the pastoral epistles, especially um, the virtues or the qualities that the overseer needs to have in 1 Timothy 3, um, there are things like um, husband of one wife, um, not given to alcohol, uh, managing their, their household well, uh, and many other passages across the, the uh, pastoral epistles. So as, as you read the pastoral epistles, you, you, you get the sense uh, many times that, that pastors are like chaplains. Their, their job, of course, including preaching, is to care for the people. And that means vis visiting them when they're sick, helping them or helping other believers when there is a quarrel in the church, uh, finding out who may not have the money to meet ends meet and buying groceries for that person. Going and visiting someone who is lonely. The work of the pastor is not just preaching. It includes preaching, but it has much more than that. It also includes, uh, and again, the best, the best term that I can use is pastoring, shepherding. And I think it's important to hear that because there's a lot of burnout. As we read in, in this um, Barna documents that, that we often get, we know that... Uh, about 45% of pastors that very week uh, thought about quitting. So, so think about that. One time, at least, and, and during the week, uh, a pastor thought, should I keep doing this or should I quit? And I think that one of the reasons for that is that pastors have a lot of pressure. And that pressure, in, in part, comes from the idea that their sermons have to be uh, oratorical pieces of art. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting in a room here where I'm looking 
some beautiful piece of art. And, and I think that uh, many pastors think that every Sunday they have to produce that kind of work. Now, put yourself in their shoes and imagine the pressure of having to do Sunday after Sunday. And then imagine if you are this uh, so-called senior pastor in the church and you're the only one who does that kind of preaching. Imagine the pressure that you're going to feel. At some point, you're going to break. And I tend to think that some of the scandals that, that unfortunately we have come about because these pastors are burning out. And some of that burnout, I think, comes from not understanding that they don't have to be uh, Billy Graham <laughs> as preachers. Uh, they don't have to be, uh, to mention a colleague of mine here at Beeson Divinity School, Dr. Robert Smith, who's, who's, who's gifted in, in, a, in a very specific and an amazing way to be a pastor. You don't have to be Dr. Robert Smith to be a pastor. As long as you feel that call of God and you want to serve him and you want to shepherd the people, this is what God is expecting of you. And you should share that with others. The idea that the pastor, the senior pastors, uh, from Wednesdays through Friday, their offices are closed and no one can interrupt them because they're working on the piece of art, the sermon. Okay, I think that could work, but you have to be careful that that doesn't become all you do as a pastor. So that, I think, has been the biggest impact that the pastoral epistles has had on me on this on this reading of them that to be a pastor means to shepherd and to take care of people and that we should be concentrating on that and that not only one person should be doing that but several people should be doing that and that several people should also be doing the preaching in the churches and i think uh perhaps things would get better maybe less burnout if, if we follow that uh, pattern or a similar pattern. So often the pastoral epistles are dominated by questions related to 1 Timothy 2, um, which is the passage that seems to silence women. Uh, so everyone wants <laughs> to know, what do you think about 1 Timothy 2? Uh, how would you recommend we approach the, the reading of this text? In just a couple of minutes, I know you could spend a whole whole time here, but just in a couple of minutes, some thoughts about just how we approach the reading of First Timothy two um, eleven through fifteen. Yes, thank you, Kristen. That was a that's a very easy question you asked me there. <laughs> yes, again, when you write a commentary, you go, you go back and forth with the text. You read it the first time, and then you come back to it six months later, and then again and again, and your ideas develop as you as you see the text. And I would say that the latest idea that, which means that I can change my mind, in the future, but uh, the latest idea that, that, that has hit me from that text is that it is a strange text. It is a very strange text. Uh, for some of you, you hear that statement and you say, how could you say that? I've always known since I was little, being raised in church, that that text is there. I don't allow women to, to teach or to have authority. They're, they're, they're to be silent and so on. But if you look at the, at the Bible as a canon, if you look at the 66 books of the Bible, rarely do you find texts uh, where women are called to be quiet like that. Actually, you would find that kind of stuff more in the Greco-Roman philosophers of the period of Paul, like Plutarch, for example, who said that a woman 
uh, should should do the talking through her husband and not through herself. But when you look at the Bible itself, this is a strange text. You actually find that there are a lot of women who speak and who lead the entire people of God. So you have Miriam in the Old Testament, who is called a prophetess. So she speaks the word of God to the people of God. You have Deborah in the book of Judges, who is also called a prophetess. And, and people come for advice to her, and for more than advice. And, uh, and, and she leads them. You have Huldah, one of the prophetesses in the Old Testament. Uh, and then in the New Testament, you have Paul calling a lot of the women who work with him as co-workers. I get the sense reading the Acts of the Apostles and the Book of Romans that that couple, Priscilla and Aquila, that Priscilla, um, that she often took the lead. For example, we hear that she, after hearing uh, the great preacher Apollos speak, that they approach him and that she uh, teaches him on the, the nuances of Christian doctrine, let's put it that way. And then, of course, in Romans 16, you have Phoebe, who was the letter carrier. Is it possible that as the letter carrier, she also read the letter? And so, and then, of course, you have 1 Corinthians 11, where women uh, can prophesy as long as they do it in a respectful way. So you have a lot of texts in the New Testament where women are permitted and are described as leading the people of God and then you have this text in 1 Timothy 2. And that's why I say that this is, a, this is a strange text. Why then does it not seem strange to many people? And I think the reason is because where we read, where we sit when we hear the Word of God, our context where we hear the Word of God affects how we hear the Word of God and what we hear from the Word of God. And so if you have been in that denomination, that uh, is more what we call, and I hate to use these labels, but we have to use some labels, that we call complementarian, you may, be, you may hear that text a lot. Whereas if you go to a church, uh, you know, I, I myself, I'm uh, Latino, Hispanic, you may go to a Pentecostal church uh, where many times women are allowed to preach and to teach, you're not going to hear that text that much. So one of the things that is one of the things that of the things that has struck me the most that that passage in First Timothy two is a very strange passage, but we think that is not strange. We think that is very common because we read it a lot, and because in church history it has been read a lot. But I actually see that text as a strange text, where if you want to know what I think about the meaning by the commentary. Now, now uh, I'll, I'll tell you real quick. In my opinion, you have women who have, just as it happens with men, who, who took Paul's statements of Christian liberty. We are all one in Christ. Uh, there is neither Greek or Jew, slave or free, male nor female. And I think that some of the women took it maybe a little too far and were showing disrespect to some of the men. And so Paul has to intervene and say, uh, no, don't do that. Show respect. And then he's going to base that on Scripture. And, of course, uh, why is he basing it on the Scriptures? Because, well, where else is he going to base it? He's going to base it on the Word of God. Because that is the Word of God. And that is where authority comes from. So that's a sort of a broad view of 
First Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Um, I was a little bit all over the place there, but that's, uh, again, um, maybe you can read the commentary and see more cogent explanation of it. Dr. Bidia, I have uh, a, a final question about your, your new commentary that's more general in nature than the one that Kristen just asked. Um, and the listeners need to know something about you and your ministry here at Beeson to understand the, the fullness of what I have in my head when I pose the question to you in a minute. Mm. What I want the listeners to know is that Dr. Padilla is one of the most popular classroom teachers at Beeson Divinity School because he so obviously loves the students. And I'm here to tell you the students obviously love him. And that makes me wonder, um, as you get around to sitting down in front of your computer and writing a Bible commentary, are there ways in which your teaching, your relationship with the students is affecting what you're doing? And if so, how does your teaching, how do the students contribute to your writing? Yeah. Well, thank you for those kind words. Um, what, when I sit down to, to write, um, what the relationship that I have with the students has a profound effect on, when I, on what I end up writing. And there are myriads of ways in which that happens, but, but let me just say two things. Number one, the questions they ask you. When we're studying a book, say, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Right now I'm teaching uh, a class based on the English Bible on the Gospel of Mark. And some of the questions that the students can come up with, uh, I would have never thought of them in 100 years. Uh, yeah. and, and, and those questions... Uh, push me to dig deeper into the text and to try to, to come up with an answer. So the kinds of questions that they ask uh, are very helpful. And then to flip it around, sometimes when, when I'm trying to explain a text and I provide an explanation, many times they say, mm, we don't quite buy that explanation. Uh, it sounds good, but, but, but what have you done about this, Dr. Padilla, this explanation? And yes, and then sometimes it makes more sense. Uh, and in fact, I have a book uh, that is going to hopefully be written in, in a couple of years where it was a comment from a student that was the key, really, that opened the door to view a text of Scripture in a particular way. And so I don't think I could be uh, the writer that I am without my students, not just in the questions that they ask, the answers that they provide when they don't think my answers are good, but the encouragement that I receive from them. So uh, it's really a blessing. My, my students are a blessing here at Beeson, and it's, it's perhaps the main reason why I'm here. We're almost out of time, but I wonder if you can um, update our listeners on the project that you're working on with other New Testament scholars called New Testament in Color. What's going on with that project, and when should we expect to see it? Thank you for mentioning that. This project I am very excited about. Again, it's called the New Testament in Color. Uh, and what this text is, uh, excuse me, what this book is, is a book written by four of us. Uh, we have one main editor. His name is Dr. Esau McCauley. Many of you know him. He's a, a professor at uh, Wheaton College in Illinois. Uh, but also Dr. Amy Peeler, who's also a professor at Wheaton and Dr. Janet Ogg, who teaches at Fuller Theological Seminary. The four of us are writing uh, this book uh, with the addition of other authors. Uh, 
And we are trying to write it from the perspective of where we are, where we live, where we come from. So it's called the New Testament color because uh, Iso Macaulay is African-American. Amy Peeler is Anglo-Saxon. I Osvaldo, I don't know what I am. I guess I'm kind of brown. <laughs> so, something like that, olive, olive oil color or something. And, and then uh, our friend Janet Oak is a different color. So we're, we're trying to show in this, in this New Testament that where you come from racially, ethnically, socioeconomically affects the way that you read scripture. So we're not trying to read those ideas into the scriptures and to say that the Bible, the Bible has to be read in light of our experience. No, we're not saying that. We're saying that why do we have experience as African-Americans, as Latinas and Latinos, uh, as Anglo-Saxons? They have taught us things about Scripture, about God, or about our relationship with God, and we want to bring those things into the biblical text and ask questions of the biblical text coming from that. So I'm very excited about this text. They are, uh, just, just to be very brief, we have a, a, a contributor who's, who's an, uh, an Asian American contributor, and he was talking about what the parental child relationship is like between uh, in, the, in the Asian American context. And it is very different from the Hispanic context where I come from. And he was explaining it to me. And when I go and I read the text of scripture in light of that Asian American parental context, it leads me to read the text of scripture in such a richer manner. And that is just one example of, of the things that we're trying to do in this book. It's not a book that has been motivated by politics, by the so so-called woke movement or something like that. It's, it's just a book that we, hey, we are Christians from different parts of the world. That, that is what the kingdom of God is. And we want to see if that can help other believers uh, from other uh, ethnicities to read the Bible perhaps in a richer way and we can learn from one another. Sounds good, Dr. Dr. Padilla. And your wife, your dear wife, of course, also asked you when Will the rest of us get to read this book? When do you expect it to be done and out? Yeah, I would say look for uh, 2023, maybe 2024 as, as the book, as a, I was going to say as a generous date, but I would say more as a realistic date, right. uh, 2023, but more like 2024. And it's going to be published by IVP Academic. Thanks. Welcome. Well, Osvaldo, as you know, because you're married to the uh, co-host of the Beeson podcast, we always end these interviews by asking our guests what's going on in their lives right now spiritually. What is the Lord teaching you these days that you might share with the listeners by way of edification? Yeah, I'm happy to. Well, besides the things that we talked about, <laughs> uh, there are many other things that the Lord has been teaching me. I would say that as an Anglican, I'm, I'm someone who depends a lot on the Book of Common Prayer for my devotions. And very recently, I read a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. We, we call them collects. Um, there has to be some sort of etymology for that, for that term, but, but that, is the, that is the term. We call, we call them, them collects, but they just mean prayers. Uh, and in this collect, 
uh, that I was reading, I read, I, I don't have the Book of Common Prayer here with me, but I can sort of give you a loose quotation. But the, the, the statement, the prayer was something like, God, whose power is shown chiefly in your love for us. And uh, that statement has been in my heart, it's been in my mind, and it won't go away. <laughs> when we think about God's power, we think of the creation of the universe, and yes, that's God's power. We think of the creation of humanity and uh, DNA and cells. We think of the creation of, of, of beautiful animals, uh, and, and all of those things are part of God's power. But but to think, as, as I read there, that uh, God's power is demonstrated in his love is something that I think uh, we need to hear again and again. It reminds me of uh, 1 John chapter 5, where uh, the, uh, the evangelist tells us that God is love. And we don't have a lot of time. I wish I had more time to tell you, but I am a Christian because I believe that God is love. Not just any love that people out there think, but scriptural, biblical love. And, and that concept that the power of God is chiefly shown in his love is what God is working, is God, is what, excuse me, is what God is using in my life to work. And it's making me think more and more about how I am caring for those who are less fortunate than me, uh, preaching the gospel and uh, caring for those who may be poor, uh, who may be sick. How am I showing the love of God to them? So many other things we can speak about, but, but th that would be the, uh, the latest. That's a great word on which to end this episode of the Beeson Podcast. God loves us with a love that is stronger than death as the mm. author of the, the Song of Solomon tells us, mm. and wants us to share that love with others. Somebody who shares that love with lots of us here at Beeson Divinity School is Dr. Osvaldo Padilla. He's the one you've been listening to. He's professor of divinity, specializing in the New Testament here at Beeson. Thank you, Dr. Padilla, for all your hard work in the classroom and the study these days and for being on the show with us today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we love you, we're praying for you, and we say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.